Thank you, David. Thank you, Lois, both uh, stepping in and uh, Lois in particular, finding out she'd be on the piano about three minutes, if, if that much, before the service began. Thank you for, for that. We're continuing together as we, uh, we have just spoken. We've sung to the Lord. We've prayed to the Lord. We've, we've spoken of the Lord. Now we get to hear from the Lord, from his word. And, and so we'll, we are continuing to do that by going through the Gospel of John together. At the end of chapter 12, it was the end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, he is no longer teaching and doing miracles among the crowds. And starting at chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 is what's, what's called the upper room discourse. Uh, this is where our Lord is in that upper room with his disciples and, and, and teaching them. And I so often think of what that scene means. Our Lord knows that the very next day he is going to the cross. And in that upper room discourse, he's trying to prepare his disciples for what that will mean to them. They've loved him, served him, walked with him, learned from him for three years. And now they will, to their horror, see him that very evening after the upper room discourse, arrested. The, the terrible trials that he will then face, ending in a, in a crucifixion. And so our Lord, well aware of what that's going to mean for them, spends these hours preparing them for that day and all that will follow. He began, remember, as they sat down to a Passover meal, a Passover Seder, as we enjoy every, we, we do that every year, the Thursday, as this is, the Thursday before Easter, uh, that's the Thursday before Good Friday, is when he had this meal with his disciples. And after the meal had begun, he, he did the washing of feet. And we've talked about that when we enjoy the Seder together. And uh, we, we saw that event. Now, starting at verse 12 through 20 is where we are, our Lord will give some reflection on what he has done. And so uh, you might want to follow in your Bible as I read John 13, verses 12 to 20. So when he had washed their feet, when, for when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So two weeks ago, uh, we talked about this passage. And last week we had our Father's Day message. Our Lord was there with those 12 disciples in the upper room. And, and it was a confusing thing that our Lord did. 
normally you would come into a, a room, uh, come into a home, and as you enter, a servant, and frankly the lowest of servants, would, would be there to wash your feet. There was no servant, and so they went to the table with dirty feet. Remember, back then they had sandals. Back then they did not have paved sidewalks, and so their feet were dirty. And Jesus is the one who stood up from the, from the table after they had sat at the table or reclined at the table and went around and washed their feet. It was so shocking that, uh, remember Peter, some people you can always count on to have an opinion. Some of you have been teachers, and there's those students you know that are going to always say something. Um, Peter, of course, had some, I love the passage that says, Peter, not knowing what to say, spoke. But Peter, um, he said, no, he said, you shall never wash my feet. And in the Greek language, it's about this. That's the strongest way you construct that. You shall not, not wash my feet to eternity. What's really interesting, he begins, Lord, you shall not. Those two words, Lord and you shall not, do not belong on the same page. But of course, eventually he relinquishes. Jesus washes his feet. Now the Lord explains his actions. In verse 12, he says, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? He begins with a question. Again, I've, I've noticed this in the teaching ministry of our Lord, how often he begins with a question. Instead of just saying, this, uh, this is the way it is, he asks a question to try to open the minds a little bit. And I've often talked about how he teaches by confusion. He does something that's so unexpected, it, it kind of makes people want to know, what are you talking about? And so he's done something that's shocking and say, do you know what I've done? Now, now he's, he's not meaning, do you know that I've just washed your feet? What he's really saying is, do you know why I have done this? As I was thinking about this passage, it struck me, if you've been to our Seder, you know there's just a part in the service when it's expected, the rabbis uh, expect that the children present will have questions about this evening and some of the unusual things there to do. In fact, the rabbis, are, it's so important to them that, the, that questions are asked, they actually write out the questions for the youngest person there to, to read. And we, you know, we quote it. You might remember it starts off, Manish Tanaha, Laila Hazemi, Kolelilo. Why is this night different from all others? Why? And then it starts listing all the things that are unusual about this dinner. And so it seems interesting that our Lord begins this part, the discussion with a question. Do you know what I've done? In other words, why? Here's that why question. Why have I washed your feet? And what he wants them to understand, and he'll explain to them, is in a sense, it's a parable. He's acted out a spiritual lesson by his actions, and he's about to explain that. In verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. So he begins by, to fully appreciate what has just happened, remembering who Jesus is. Because that's what makes it so significant. Uh, he stands out in the room. I understand when the, if there's some kind of a gathering and, 
and uh, maybe of people that are, you know, high-ranking in government, all this. You know how it is. Everybody knows each other, and they call each other by first name. Uh, apparently, if the president is there, even the people who work closest with them, every, everyone else they may call Tom, Bill, Sally, uh, but him it's Sir. Mr. Pre- you know, his, his rank uh, makes him different. And so, again, if, if, if the president were the one who started um, you know, serving the, the, the meal, uh, you know, pulling out the chairs for everyone at the table, it would be shocking, and everybody would be set off. Wait a minute, this, this isn't how this works. Coming to my mind, and uh, have you ever seen the movie or the play uh, The King and I? There's a scene in there where the king of Thailand is running around giving everybody napkins <laughs> because that was kind of a new thing to them, and he was very proud that they have their napkins distributed. And that has nothing to do with today's message, <laughs> except... The shocking thing is, here's the king giving everybody napkins. So he says, remember, you call me teacher and Lord. He's, he's not putting words in their mouth. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. The word teacher you'll see in the Gospels is kind of the equivalent of the word rabbi. It's a respected word term. It's a term of respect. And it's a, it's a term of authority. Uh, especially you know, throughout the history, but especially in the Eastern world, uh, a teacher is a person of respect. Uh, I remember something that I experienced when I was invited, when I spent a summer teaching English in, in Taiwan. And I was asked to go and teach a, a fourth grade class in a conversational English. A, a fourth grade class that was, I don't know, 40 or 50 kids were in there. Uh, it was all, I guess it was all girls class, but I remember I walked in and they instantly jumped up like I was a major general or something and uh, every time I spoke to someone they got seemed terrified because I was a teacher and, and, and you don't say seated when the teacher walks in and so I thought this is kind of different from schools in America <laughs> they all had the same haircut they all had the same clothes and I thought I like this I make them back <laughs> um, you call me teacher rabbi that's a, that's, that's a, 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 a title of respect and honor and he says, you call me Lord. That, that's a term that is, is, means master. But it's also the term when people spoke of, of Caesar as divine, they called him Lord. When they burned incense to an image of Caesar, they made a profession of faith. Caesar is Lord, kurios in, in Greek. And Jesus says, you call me Lord. You call me Rabbi. You call me Lord. And he says, that's good. Again, it reminds me of, of when, remember Doubting Thomas? Poor, poor Thomas. Well, everybody, for centuries we've called him Doubting Thomas because he was so hard to convince. And so, because he wasn't there in the first resurrection appearance. And then the Lord came back the next week. And he said, Thomas, come here. Touch my hands. Touch my side. And says, Thomas just falls before the Lord and says, remember? My Lord and my God. Those are terms of worship. And so Jesus is saying, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. 
He's acknowledging those titles and saying those are right. In the next section, he continues as he kind of now goes on with his explanation. But let me read verses 13 and 14 together. And I want you to listen carefully, see if you notice something different. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Did you notice something? In verse 13, teacher and Lord is what they say. Verse 14, how does he say it? Lord and teacher. He's kind of swapped them to emphasize. Teacher, yes. Lord. And again, that's the higher title. I have been called teacher in a number of teaching settings. I would be horrified if someone called me Lord. But he's saying, Lord is my name. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He, he's emphasizing who he is. But notice what he says. Is he is, he's done some, a visible demonstration of what he expects from his followers. Now, what does that mean? When he says, um, I, I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. How are we to understand that? Some churches, some denominations, uh, take that literally. And say, therefore, we should wash one another's feet. Uh, apparently, the Pope, once a year, Monday, the Thursday before Good Friday, um, 13 um, poor people are brought to him and he washes their feet. 13, 12, I should say. Um, very, some, some, some Baptist groups have a foot washing and they consider it one of the ordinances. We speak of the ordinances as uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper. We see two. Some add a third, foot washing. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, some will do that. Some brethren, Amish will do that. They'll have a foot washing service and consider that fulfilling a command of the Lord. But, but did he really do it? Now, I can, well, I've seen foot washing once. I've never been in a church service that does that. It always strikes me that I, I imagine it's a little different. If, you were, if we had announced next week we're going to have a foot washing service, we'll, you know, come and the uh, elders will, will wash everyone's feet, what would that mean? Some of the ladies would uh, make sure that their nail polish was uh, current. Most would be concerned. Some of the fellows would be uh, trying to find a pair of socks that don't have a hole. Um, your shoes would probably be your clean, shiny, and... Uh, and slip-ons <laughs> to make it. In other words, we'd be all ready to have our feet just as presentable as possible. That's not what Jesus washed, is it? He washed Middle Eastern feet that have spent the day walking on dirty roads in sandals. And you've seen that. There's, a, there's an extra scrubbing involved in a lot of that. You know, you've looked at your feet and you look down, you can tell where the sandal is, right? There's all this dirt except for the little white straps. Where that's where the, the, the sandal hit. But is he say, saying, let's have a, 
I want you to do a foot washing service. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but I don't think he's establishing you must do this as a ritual in the church. For one thing, you don't see it ever to- talked about or to, you know mentioned in any of the epistles. This is something we do in our churches. You see the Lord's Supper, you see baptism discussed in the other epi- in the epistles, but you don't see foot washing. Also, back in chapter 13 verse 10, Jesus said, "You are washed, but not all of you." So I can wash your feet, but I don't need to wash your whole body because you've already been washed. But he wasn't talking about a bath. He was talking about the spiritual washing of regeneration. So here he's talking, I I believe, about in a spiritual sense, we're to serve one another, to humbly serve one another. Just as as Jesus did. But how did he do it? First of all, he mentions, you know, he was Lord. He talked about how he set aside if his garments is kind of a picture of setting, setting aside his glory. He's calling us to humbly serve one another, setting aside self. Not making a show of my humility. And that's why I think some of that can, can, can look like that, where, where it's going to be quite a show. So-and-so is going to wash so-and-so's feet today. That, that seems like more of a display of humility. You've heard about the church, right, that were so impressed with their pastor, they, what a humble man he was, they gave him a, a little badge uh, for, uh, to honor his humility. And then when he wore it to church, they took it away from him. <laughs> um, but he's talking about humble servanthood. What does that look like? Some of the illustrations that come to mind, perhaps you've eaten at a Wendy's. It was founded by a man named Dave Thomas. And uh, he, he was fond of saying he had his MBA before he got his GED. At Wendy's, an MBA means a mop bucket attitude. In other words, he learned how to be a humble servant before he ever even got his GED. Uh, he, he had raised in humble circumstances and he knew what it meant to be a humble serving worker and he was and that was to him a title of honor that was his MBA of course Mr. Spurgeon will have an insight on this he says Christ sends none away empty but those who are full of themselves Christ sends none away empty but those who are full of themselves the humility comes with a it's not about me Lord it's a shedding of self. I told the story before of a conference that was going on in London back in the 1960s. A fellow named Doug was working there, and he was like head of all the, all the volunteers, and it was, a, it was a big thing, and they were filling up this building, and, and, and Doug, everyone else was finally in bed and asleep, and things were in order, so he was out uh, sweeping the stairs up to the church, uh, where the meetings were being held, just uh, and, and this, this older man walked up to him and said, is this where the conference is? He said, yes, this is. He explained it, and he said, okay, well, um, uh, uh, I want, I'm, I'm here to attend. I'm registered. And he said, oh, great. He said, but I'm afraid all oh, the beds are already taken. He said, well, that's, but I'll find something for you. So he went in and went into this room where probably about 50 people were sleeping on the floor, and he was able to find a little spot, and he put down some blankets as a mat, brought him a blanket to wear and, oh, and some towels for a pillow and he said um, have you eaten he said no I've been on the road all day and he said oh let's find something he went to the kitchen they found uh, cornflakes and milk 
and he gave him the meat, and, and then uh, finally they both bedded down. In the morning, Doug was accosted by the leadership of the, of the conference and said, what have you done? So, <laughs> he said, our speaker, Francis Schaefer, you put on the floor last night. We had a guest room laid out for him. What have you done? Well, Doug missed, you know, he perhaps should have recognized him, but what does that tell you about Francis Schaefer? Frankly, some, I'll leave it at some, would show up and make a point of, here I am. Everyone has come to hear me. That wasn't Francis Schaefer. Place on the floor, that'd be nice. I'm tired. Cornflakes, best thing I've had all day. That's humility. Instead of flaunting, look at who I am, he came to serve. And if that meant being on the floor, okay, that's what he would do. A businessman one time asked a Bible study group, how can you tell if you have a servant attitude? The answer that came was, by the way, you react when you're treated like a servant. It's interesting to me. Uh, I, I have seen this maybe in a restaurant setting or something where someone calls someone a servant and they're offended. I am no servant. I am this or that. In biblical vocabulary... It's, one of the, it's a title of high honor. The passage we read from Isaiah this morning, the servant there is the servant of the Lord. That's the Messiah. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He welcomes the label servant. And if the one we call Lord and teacher welcomes the label servant, what about us? And so Jesus, when he says, I, I want you to wash one another's feet, he's talking about, I want you to humbly serve one another. Verse 16, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. And so he's given an example of his own humble servanthood. If I could lay aside my garment, put on the apron of a servant, get on my knees and wash your dirty, smelly feet, and if I am your master, are you greater than I am? If you're called to do some humble service, will you be offended? Or will you gladly rejoice to take up the uh, servant apron fellowship? Well, he's given us an example of his own servanthood. So if ever you're put in a place, sometimes it's doing a, a menial thing, a thing that seems beneath you. Sometimes it's serving and no one acknowledging it. A word of thanks. A word of acknowledgement that you did it. One word of comfort there is the Lord doesn't miss a thing. The master sees And he doesn't miss it at all. But he, he wants to underscore, I illustrated, I demonstrated servanthood. And frankly, the greater demonstration of that is the next day, isn't it? When he will go to the most shameful and brutal of death, the cross, to serve us. 
If the Lord will do those things for us, what would we withhold from him? And so if I want to be like Jesus, some people say if I want to be like Jesus, that that means I'll stand on mountains and preach to thousands. Some have done that and been mightily used. But most of us have a humbler service, a humbler calling. And God can use that for his glory. I read of a, another man's testimony, and interestingly enough, this man's name was Doug. I don't know if it's the same guy or whatever, but I read this in World Magazine back in the 1990s. And he said, well, he was serving with a group called Operation Mobilization in India in 1967. While he was there, he contracted t- tuberculosis, TB. And because of that, he spent uh, several months in a TB um, sanitarium. You know, there, it was, uh, it, it's a long time to heal of that illness. And so he went into the sanitarium there. And, and his heart was to share the gospel with people. And so he tried to pass out tracts and leaflets and gospels of John. No one would take them. They, he, could, he could sense, he, he didn't know their language. They didn't know his language. That's hard. And he could sense that they were, they were offended by his presence. He's some happy rich guy, they thought. And, and, and his thought was, if you knew what Operation Mobilization missionaries were paid, I'm about as poor as you are. But there he was. They, were, he, they resented him. They rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with his gospel literature. And there he was. He was really discouraged. He was sick. He felt like, what am I doing, Lord? Everyone was angry at him. What kind of a witness is that? Well, apparently because of his TB, every night about 2 in the morning, he would wake up with a coughing spell. And he woke up one night coughing, and, and as he was awake, he heard the fellow across the aisle from him. and he, was, was, he saw him really wrestle to sit up on the bed, trying to get up. And then he couldn't. He just lay back down and wept. The next day there was quite a bit of upset because uh, he'd been trying to get to the restroom and couldn't make it. The next night, two in the morning, he was up coughing and he looked and there he was wrestling again to try and get up a bed and fell back on the bed in tears. And he says, I don't know what it came over me, but it just seemed the thing to do. He got up himself, though he was quite ill. He reached his arm underneath his neck and head and the other arm under his, his, his knees. And he tells about how the man at first was afraid. What are you going to do to me? But he picked him up and he carried him to the bathroom, helped him take care of his needs there. And then picked him up and carried him back and, and he said as he, as he was putting him down on the bed the man kissed him on the cheek and said something he thought must mean something like thank you and he went back to his bed four in the morning someone woke him up presented him a cup of savory Indian tea and he thought what's this about they've hardly acknowledged my existence here and, and, and the man seemed to be signaling something from him and he, he gathered he wanted some gospel literature and he gave it to him Pretty soon, uh, various other staff and nurses and even doctors were coming to him and asking for him some of the, that, you know, he could tell by sign language they wanted some of that material too. And the patients as well. And pretty soon everybody in the hospital had received some kind of gospel literature and a number had come forward and, and as a result of reading that material had professed to him best he could figure out that they too had to trust Christ as Savior. Revival broke out in a TB ward in India. How did that happen? Was it because he was such a brilliant preacher? He couldn't tell them one word. 
Was it his charming personality? Have you ever been desperately sick? It was his humble service. And when they said, if this foreigner, if this American could humble himself in ways we wouldn't, he must have something to say. God uses our humble service for his glory. We can trust him for that. When Jesus said in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That word blessed, some of your translations will have happiness. It's the same blessed of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. But the key here is to notice the sequence here. If you know, happy are you if you do them. Warren Wiersbe summarizes it's that the sequence is important. Humbleness, holiness, then happiness. The world thinks, he says, that happiness is the result of others serving us. Real joy comes when we serve others in the name of Christ. Have you ever noticed how Jesus always takes common thought and turns it on its head? We look at someone and say, oh, they're really important and they've really got it. Look at all the servants that attend to them. Where in Jesus' way of viewing things, oh, look at how many you've served. Blessed are you if you know this and do it. In verses 18 to 20, he speaks of an exception. He speaks of Judas Iscariot. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. What he's saying is, you know, this idea of if you know these things and do them, you'll be blessed. He says that's not for everybody. Thus, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that's those who know him as Savior. And Judas was there. He could wash all the feet he wants, but it wouldn't be a blessing to him because he was doing it in a heart of rebellion against Christ. And so he says, I know whom I've chosen. Remember he said earlier, all of you are clean, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas, all of them had been cleansed in the washing of regeneration. You want to see that explained? Titus chapter 3 verse 5 explains that. They've been washed, Titus 3, 5. But not all of you. So even though he called him and allowed Judas to be a part of things, and even Judas went out and and preached, apparently did miracles, because they never came back and said, why is it, it never works for Judas. God worked miracles through him for God's glory, but Judas never really believed in Jesus Christ as a Savior. Never was born again. And he says, so not all of you, receive this blessing of serving because not all of you know Christ. But he goes on to say he's not surprised by his betrayal. One of the things that's a struggle for us is sometimes we might might be in a church family and someone becomes a complete apostate spiritually, doctrinally, morally. Shocked and horrified. Sometimes, a, you know, one of these church leaders that are out there, you know, the the, uh, the ones that are on 
I guess television or whatever, but you know, the, the, the superstar, the celebrity pastors. I have never been accused of being a celebrity pastor. <laughs> but these celebrity pastors, and some, you know, and some of them maybe have really blessed you in some of the messages they preach, and then all of a sudden, boom, what happened? They're denying the faith and their behavior and their words. And that can kind of rock us a little bit. And so Jesus is saying, don't be rocked. Don't be shaken. So I'm telling you in advance. One of you is a traitor. And I've known it all along. He didn't fool me. And in fact, it even fulfills scripture. He quotes Psalm 41.9. This is a psalm of David. I won't go into all the details, but it's probably speaking of how Ahithophel, his counselor, betrayed him. And then Ahithophel, when, when David's own son rose up in rebellion against him, Absalom, Ahithophel went over to support Absalom's war against David. And then after he realized Absalom's rebellion was going to fail, Ahithophel took his own life. In the same way, Judas took his own life. So that's the background of Psalm 41.9 when he says, this is what David said, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. See, David didn't know the heart like Jesus did. He trusted Ahithophel. Jesus didn't trust Judas. But notice he said, he, he ate at my table. He ate my bread. In, in the Middle Eastern world, the greatest honor is to be invited to someone's table. There's all things that go with that. If you're, if you're a host, at, so if you're a guest at someone's home and table, you're under their protection. You are honored. Here is someone that ate at my table, ate my bread, and he lifted up and kicked me with a heel like a horse. The language here is like the, uh, a horse uh, kicking you from behind. And in the Middle Eastern world, the foot is a thing of dishonor. Remember when Saddam Hussein's statue was taken down? What did they do to show their utter disregard and disrespect for Saddam Hussein? They threw their shoes at it. Here, this one who was a guest at my table kicked me with his heel. That's what David, how David expressed the rending of his heart by betrayal of one he thought he could trust. And Jesus said, and if that could be true in David's life, it's true in my life. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And so, Jesus, David is trying to prepare his disciples. There's a traitor in their midst. And if you've ever been a victim of betrayal, you know how that can rock your world. And Jesus, the one betrayed, is showing his concern for his followers more than himself. And so his comfort is, I want you to understand, I was not fooled. Secondly, this fulfills God's purposes. In other words, I'm not surprised, though you may be. Don't let this rock your confidence in Christ. 
And frankly, sometimes in a time of betrayal, we might lash out at the Lord and say, where were you? Didn't you know? And of course he knew. He's not surprised. But this is sometimes what even God's chosen believers have to know this pain. And so he tells him in advance, don't worry, I knew about it. And then in verse 20, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So he's describing, here was one who was in the midst of all of this, and, and, and he'd never embraced Christ or his message. Never. And it wasn't just that he walked away. He sold Christ out for, for a pocket of silver. But Jesus is saying, you go where I send you. And you will find that there will be people who receive you in my name. So he's giving them encouragement. Again, when someone falls that's close to us, or someone falls whom we deeply honor, it could rattle us. And, and Jesus is giving them assurance you're going to go out, and you're, you will be received in the name of Christ. Oh, you will, see, you will experience rejection of these 11 left. 10 will die a violent death for Christ. One will live out old age and will spend much time in, in prison and in, in exile. The Apostle John who writes this. You will experience rejection. But I have my people. And they will respond to you because they're responding to me. And in responding to me, they're responding to God. This is the way to God through Jesus Christ. Well, as we look at this passage, I just want to glean a few thoughts for you. Jesus took time to enact a parable in front of them to teach us a valuable lesson. We, when we humble ourselves to serve others, we're honoring Christ. And if Christ could set aside his glory to serve us, what glory do we have? What little we have, we can gladly set aside to serve him. That is so contrary to this world, isn't it? It's all about me. It's all about self. It's all about getting my honor. I've seen some of these events where someone wins an event or doesn't win, but they're, they're, well, their first thing is, I'm proud of myself. That's not, the, that's not the language of someone who knows Christ, who says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a person like me of whom I'm so proud. A wretch. And so if Christ can set aside his true glory, we should be happy to set aside man's attention and pride to serve as we humbly serve the glory of Christ our master is seen think of that man in utter illness and despair in a, in a TB ward in, in India bringing a small revival because he humbled himself when no one else would Notice, too, it's not enough to know the truths. The blessing comes when we, and we act on them. 
Blessed are you if you know this and do this. James will later on tell us, don't be a hearer only, be a doer of the word. We can recite a creed. We can walk through what the gospel means. But do we do it? Do we trust in Christ as Savior and give our lives to him? And there's great blessing. The Lord says when we humbly serve him, there is blessing. It may not be wealth. Often it isn't. Usually it isn't. But the blessing comes in serving him and knowing his pleasure. Just remember too, even in Christ's inner circle, there was a a traitor in the midst. There was an unbeliever who, who actually was one of the preachers. Have you ever heard, can you imagine the thought of a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, an elder, a missionary, not, not knowing Christ? Perfect example, that was John Wesley. He went to America as a missionary, but he didn't know the gospel. On his way back, he ran into genuine believers, they were called Moravians, and they actually explained the gospel to him, and he eventually came to Christ through joining their meetings and hearing the gospel. But he had been a missionary. You know, you can't think of anything more holy than a missionary. There, I've heard of stories of pastors preaching the gospel uh, for years. I remember hearing of one who he had preached a message and so convicted him, he realized he had never impersonally taken it to his own heart, trusted Christ right there. He responded to his own altar call. <laughs> so so uh, those, are, those are the good. Don't be rattled by the surprise of an unbeliever in our midst. Don't be rattled by betrayal. 1 John 2.19, John was trying to comfort the believers there. He says, don't, don't take it too personally. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that none of them were of us. So if they depart from the faith and deny the faith and fall off into all kinds of immorality, it's not that they lost their salvation. John's saying they never had it. They were a Judas who could talk the talk and walk the walk for a while. And again, that's one of the things where I always say, if you're thinking about marrying someone, if you're looking at someone trying to decide if they're a believer, you don't decide that overnight. You watch their life. You see how they make decisions. You hear what they talk about. Boy, if I can throw in an up-to-date application of that. I've been saying that as long as we've been had this church, but that's got to be even more uh, tenuous when you're doing online dating. Now, I'm not saying you can't or shouldn't do that, um, but you've got to set up all kinds of filters to really examine this person because you know what? We can all present well on, on the Internet, can't we? Apparently, a major source of the youth, youth depression is they read, read other people's Facebook posts and think their lives are perfect and mine's not. I remember one time we had a visitor here and he was, came and I asked my typical question, how'd you find us? He said on the internet. I said, oh, that's great. It gives you a chance to really check out a church before you go. He said, yeah, but it's kind of like online dating. What, what you look like online may not match what you are in, present, in person. <laughs> Um, he wasn't saying that about us, but, but all that to say, if you are in that, taking that road, 
throw up more filters, spend more time. And I never thought I would preach a message related to online dating. Um, how do we see ourselves if we're humble? By seeing the Lord. A.B. Simpson, a, a great believer of a previous generation, said true humility is not thinking meanly of ourselves. It's not thinking of ourselves at all. You know, I'm not saying, oh, get a bad self-image. Just don't even think about yourself. It's, just, it's not about you. It's about Christ. What would Christ have me do? What would Christ have me do? You know, the fellow, again, the TV ward, he even surprised himself. What am I doing? He wasn't thinking, oh, this will really impress everyone. He just said, the poor fellow needs help. By the way, one last thought. I haven't mentioned this yet. But if you look around that table, there was one set of dirty feet. Have you thought about that? Not Judas. Not Peter. Jesus. In all of his serving them, not one person said, Lord, may I have that basin for a minute? Jesus went all the way through the Seder, all the way through the evening with dirty feet. Because not one would step forward to serve him. No one of, of, the, of that 12 would humble themselves, even after that lesson and lecture, would humble themselves to wash the feet of their master. Let's not make the same mistake. Lord, you didn't wash my feet. You washed me in regeneration. But more, Lord, you washed me from guilt. You washed me from sin. How can I serve you? So there's two thoughts to take from this. You may have attended church all your life, grown up in the church, and know the words, but have you personally trusted in Christ as Savior? If you haven't, do so. Trust in him. Receive the gift of life by turning from your sin and receiving his forgiveness. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, let's not leave his feet dirty. Let's be busy about humbly serving the master who humbly served us. Our Father, we thank you for sending your son in such a way to us. Oh, if we were designing what a savior would look like, that would not be the story. And so we see the truth and reality in that you have shocked us by the humility of a savior who came to save. Father, I do pray that each one here would, and each one who hears these words would know this loving, humble savior. And Father, may we truly follow his example by forgetting about ourselves and gladly serving Jesus Christ, our Lord. For it's in his name we pray.